All right. Good morning, everyone. Please forgive the late start. I'd like to blame everyone else, but I can't. We are going to be opening up at page 46 in Martin Chemnitz in Caridium. And if you recall from last week, we've really seen Chemnitz lay out for us the foundation of the scriptures, and now we're examining what it is that the pastors are to teach us from the scriptures. And again, we have already seen that it's more diverse than simply law and gospel. It's more diverse than simply Christ and him crucified. Those are essential elements. They're always present in our preaching and teaching. They're always central in our preaching and teaching. But there are many, many other aspects to preaching and teaching. There are many aspects, other aspects to the scriptures. We will pick up then with uh, six different loci that Chemnitz gives us. But before we do that, let us begin with invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, if memory and my notes serve... On page 46, under question 52, what things are required to render that faithfulness? Again, pastors are to be faithful dispensers of the mysteries of God, of the doctrines and teachings of God. Um, We had looked at maybe the first and the second paragraphs. Does that, the first and second, Lochi, does that ring a bell? Yeah? So once more to the second one, just to, because this is of the most importance. Chemnitz writes, let, Second, let him speak the word of God, not only in general, but let him with special love and diligence so form and apply his sermons to himself and the hearers that the whole church is edified, that means built up, edified thereby. This is what happens when both in sermons and in his whole ministry, he sets before himself the chief parts that the Holy Spirit himself has prescribed, so that he namely refers and directs all things either to doctrine or to comfort or to patience, Endurance, of course, falls here under patience. Endurance in the faith, patience under trial and tribulation. Or to directive, or to reproof, or to correction, or to repentance, or to faith, or to righteousness, or new obedience in good works commanded by God. All right, and then a whole slew of scripture references given. But again, notice what... Chemnitz is teaching, and what is simply widely received amongst these very first confessional Lutherans, that preaching is to include all of these things. So again, the LCMS has gone through various iterations of of scandal in regard to the nature of preaching, and one side has taken the view that Basically, the only thing that ever ought to be preached is the condemnation of the law and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. Every single sermon ought to sound the same and ought to simply have those two things taught. And anything that would fall along the lines of doctrine that condemns something else would, would be seen as, uh, doctrine that condemns false teaching would be seen as uh, not fitting, or we would either be seen as under the condemnation of the law, so doing that condemning work, but positively affirming and setting forth a doctrine would be held in suspicion. Okay. Comforting is fine under this way of thinking, but anything that would instruct or encourage toward patience or endurance, 
bearing the afflictions and challenges of the Christian life would be seen as legalism. Likewise, anything directive (laughs) would be seen as moralistic. Um, Anything in regard to reproof or correction, it's sometimes hard for us to distinguish between those two, would be fine as long as they were seen as condemning, but not if they were seen as actually affecting an actual change or correction. That would be seen as moralistic. Repentance is fine, faith is fine, righteousness as long as it's the forensic righteousness given us in Christ Jesus and nothing else, that would be permissible. If there's any other aspect of righteousness being proclaimed, that would be forbidden. And then new obedience and good works commanded by God is viewed in this frame as completely unnecessary because if you're doing Law, gospel, preaching. If you're doing the law, condemns you, but you have the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. It's that gospel that's going to simply inspire within you new obedience on its own. So it would be foolish for you as a pastor to ever teach or preach about new obedience and good works commanded by God because they simply happen automatically. All right, well, you can see how skewed and how far away from the tree this acorn has fallen particularly when that tree is literally, ostensibly, that of the magisterial Lutheran reformers. So preaching has this whole depth and breadth to it. And by the way, this is a most comforting thing, because if you hold to this other frame that all the preacher is really supposed to do is condemn your sins and forgive your sins for the sake of Jesus, guess what happens when you go and look at Christian sermons any time 1950-ish to be safe and earlier. You realize that for roughly roughly 1950 years, nobody knew how to preach. And we suddenly discovered it somewhere in the late 20th century. Okay? Because what you will actually find, if you look back at how the magisterial Lutheran reformers themselves preached, sometimes entire sermons were devoted to doctrine. And there was never once an absolution, so to speak, in it. There was never once a Christ died for you running through the center of it or even tacked on at the end. It was just straight up doctrine. Or it was just straight up exhortation to new obedience and good works. That's all it was. You go, well, where was the gospel? Well, are you ignorant of the gospel? Do, do you need me to tell you the gospel right now? Okay. So there is, uh, there's been a lot of mind games going on uh, as of late in regard to the content of preaching. And it is wonderfully freeing to have Chemnitz frame here in regard to preaching because then when you go back and look at the sermons of the Lutherans and the sermons of the, uh, and I mean by Lutherans, I mean Lutherans earlier than, say, the late 20th century, and you go back and look at the Lutheran heritage, going all the way back to the magisterial reformers and how they themselves preach, and then you go back to preaching for 1,500 years before that, guess what you find? Everything that Chemnitz and the apostles here lay out. Okay, So I think that... um, for, for some years now, our own synodical president, uh, President Harrison, has been saying there's a crisis in preaching in our midst. And I submit to you that this is the crisis in preaching. Maybe, maybe the first level of preaching is in those churches that have given up the historic lectionary and have given up the historic liturgy and are trying to be evangelical. At that level, the crisis is you're just hardly preaching anything of substance. You're basically preaching kind of a precious moment, self-help, pop psychology sort of message that's really ostensibly not even Christian other than maybe you tack Jesus on somewhere at the beginning or the end. That might be the first way in which there's a crisis in our midst. But among those who have retained the liturgy, retained the lectionary, retained a sense of preach of Lutheran identity and Lutheran preaching, I submit to you that the biggest problem is we've narrowed it down to this strange idea of every single sermon, the pastor's job is to kill you with the law and raise you with the gospel. I would simply say that that is 
one aspect of preaching, and there are texts that do this very thing, and when the preacher is preaching those texts, he would be wise to do the same. But there are many other texts doing many other things. And again, if the preacher were to be wise as he preaches those texts, he ought to be doing what those texts themselves are doing. Make sense? Okay, I'm probably preaching to the choir here. But again, it's worth laying out for the sake of all of us, for the sake of those who might be listening to online, uh, that the scriptures themselves, and again, look at, look at what's underneath. I, I'm not going to have us look up and read through all these, but look what's underneath the statement by Kenneth. I mean, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, Titus, Acts. Um, even, even Ezekiel talks about uh, the kinds of things that pastors ought to be preaching and teaching. Okay, so let's just uh, close out the paragraph um, with those last four, five lines, and then I'll pause and see if you have any reflections. So he says, after all the various scriptural citations, and in Ezekiel 34, 15 through 17, the office of a good and faithful pastor is well described, namely that he feed the sheep, seek the lost, lead back the erring, care for the wounded and the weak, encourage the strong, distinguish sheep from goats, etc. Yeah, I once uh, had a conversation with kind of one of the new Lutherans who their idea of preaching is every single sermon, you know, you have to kill somebody with the law, condemn them with the law, and then resurrect them with the gospel, absolve their sins with those also necessary words, for you, because if you don't say for you, it's not the gospel. And, and I, it was quite evident that this, this individual held these things and held them religiously. And I said, well, what do you make of Luther's sermons? Because Luther doesn't ever do that. And the answer was, well, Luther's preaching was behind his theology. He never really got it as a preacher. <laughs> his entire life. He believed something that he couldn't put into preaching. Now, I find that impossible to believe. I think Luther's beliefs, his dogmatics, and his preaching are one and the same. They're the same organic whole. I mean, how on earth could I, as a pastor, hold to something and then preach contrary to that thing my entire life? It beggars the imagination. So... Uh, Yeah, suffice it to say that Luther himself preached in this way that Chemnitz describes, and sometimes to a point that would even make us uncomfortable. I have sometimes thought about preaching a a Luther sermon from the pulpit and not saying anything and letting the complaints roll in. How it wandered and meandered, how it was too long, how it was too accusatory against the enemies, how it didn't paint people in a fair light, how it was bereft of the gospel and comfort, and how it ended abruptly and without any apparent art or forethought. Because those are frequently things you see if you have any familiarity with Luther's sermons. I am, by the way, just as an aside and a caveat, I can't wait to get old enough to where I can emulate this part of Luther, that in the midst of his preaching, he just goes, well, that's enough for today. Amen. And sits down. <laughs> the liturgy goes on. <laughs> I'll know I arrived when I can view, uh, when I can view the sermon in just that way. Um, what wonder, because, and what I mean by that, let me explain. What wonderful trust that God's word's going to work apart from quote-unquote, my, the preacher's artisanship. This was the word of God. It was rightly preached. It will work or not. As God sees fit, I'm going to sit down. <laughs> glorious. Just glorious. Okay. Let's, let me pause and see if you have any reflections on this, because it's uh, likely to be maybe a place of some, some controversy or question in light of the circumstances previously described. Otherwise, we'll uh, see a hand in the back, and then we'll plan on rolling on to the third lochi here. Wasn't that a function of the fact that in those days, everybody went to church every Sunday? So you could, you know, it was just a continuing story of God's word and God's truth. Whereas today, there's so many parachute parishioners and try to package with a 
tidy bow to give them everything they need because you may not see them for another year before the next holiday. And so I'm, I don't know, maybe it is time to bring out some of the fire and brimstone that everybody's always afraid. They walk in like, okay, lightning's going to strike me. Well, maybe it should. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, look, I'm, I'm all for preaching the law and its full sternness. I like to flavor that off of the particular text or collection of texts that I'm preaching on. I like to let, I mean, it's tongue-in-cheek. I like to let God have the say on that. <laughs> But I do think you bring up a really valid point, and it's one that I often consider in my preaching and why, objectively, my preaching does probably have a... And again, I don't mean this in any snotty way, but my preaching probably objectively has more gospel content in it on average than Luther's, at least proportionately speaking. Now, he may do it with more skill and better, and all of that I gladly concede. Uh, But why? And that has to do with context, So I think you're right that in many of the churches in Germany of the 16th century, you aren't expecting some visitor to come in who maybe has never heard the gospel. So I'm cognizant of that, and I'm cognizant of the fact that on any given Sunday, we usually have two to ten faces I've never seen before. And so that does flavor the way that I preach and and why it's like, well, Rody, why don't you just do exactly as Luther did? And part of the answer is there's a different context. I, you know, and, and another element of that context that's different, of course, is by and large, Luther and the Lutherans aren't preaching in cities where they're the minority, where they're surrounded by this alien Protestant theology that has all its bugs and quirks and false teachings. And so that context, too, shapes and changes the way that we preach here in this context. So um, I think I think your point is very very valid, and your point also the validity of your point shows up throughout the centuries when you look at the different ways the different preachers preached. It's not all monolithic, and it's certainly not all so narrow as you're a damned sinner going to hell, but Christ has saved you. Uh, he died for you. Your sins are forgiven. Amen which seems to be the template of your average confessional liturgical sermon for the last 50-ish plus years. Yeah, so I think your point's a good one. Please. Just to follow up on this uh, term fire and brimstone, and you just said it, you're going to hell. Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards was known for this style of preaching, and then it seemed like People wandered away from it. Uh, in this list of guidelines for a pastor, would that, would the fire and brimstone uh, fall under law? And and what is your comment on the degree of that, uh, the effectiveness of that teaching? Yeah, it falls under the condemnation of God, and it, the law is the tool, generally speaking, that He uses to do that. Those things are virtually synonymous, if not identical. Um, I would say this, now you do, have, you do have bad preaching of fire and brimstone. I'm not going to make any specific comment on Edwards or anybody else, but you do have bad preaching of fire and brimstone. And that may, that's an error. The opposite of that error is no preaching of fire and brimstone. In fact, it often scandalizes many Christians to hear that the one person in all the scriptures who speaks the most of fire and brimstone is Jesus himself. In fact, if you compare Jesus to the apostles, Jesus does so way more frequently and way more poignantly uh, than than the rest of the apostles. So, um, Obviously, they do themselves. They talk of the devil. They talk of uh, God's wrath. They talk of uh, temporal and eternal punishments, eternal consequences, wrath and damnation. That's, that's all throughout. That's thorough going through the New Testament. You know, and that's one of the mistakes that people make, too, is they think, well, the Old Testament was wrath and law and condemnation, and the New Testament is uh, grace and kindness and mercy in Jesus. It's just not true for anyone who spent more than 15 minutes in the Bible. You realize that there's law and gospel in the Old Testament. There's law and gospel in the New Testament. There's not even a shift between the two. There's there's the same dynamics of fire and brimstone and condemnation, which is always temporal 
before it's eternal, and salvation in Christ through repentance. And very frequently through the amendment, amendation of one's ways. <laughs> you know, many, many places. And by the way, if you don't think this is Lutheran theology, then it's evident you haven't read the large catechism in a long time. Because the large catechism simply spells this out. That if you want to avoid temporal punishment, in fact, shape up. <laughs> in fact, stop doing things worthy of temporal punishment. That's not somehow contrary to the gospel or contrary to our theology or contrary to the message we should learn. Um, it's an essential part. It's so essential it's all, it's, it's all throughout the large catechism. So, yeah, these things we just need to be unabashed and unashamed and... Um, I mean, Luther goes so far as to say that, look, you're not going to escape uh, temporal consequence for your actions. Um, Full stop for Luther. We could modify that um, in many and various ways, uh, but that's full stop what Luther says unashamedly in the Catechism. So why is it that the best teachers in the church always have a really robust doctrine of what we call fire and brimstone, along with a really robust understanding of Christ crucified as the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Those two things always go hand in hand. Okay, I'm seeing lots of hands. Yeah, please. It kind of seems like some of these wrong ideas are shaped by Gnosticism, where we sort of deny the importance of the physical in any way, and our salvation, therefore, is only some spiritual mental head game, right? Right. So how we live, good or bad, just doesn't matter any more than whether our physical biology says male or female. It just doesn't matter. It's all what's here. So I wonder to what extent that's true. That's a great point. That's a great point. And why the excesses of a Lutheran orthodoxy, so to speak, falls into that error. Yeah, Uh, because that is the, I don't know, there's a text written some years ago by an LCMS pastor called, I think, Gnostic America. (laughs) It was really a nice, thorough treatment of how we're a completely Gnostic people. Uh, devaluing the body. We can see that running uh, like a golden thread through all the gender-bending ideology stuff and the self-identity stuff, you know, the identity politics and all that. Um, so yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right that it's sort, of a the- it's sort of a Gnostic theology for Gnostics. Yeah, great point. Great. Please. I was going to ask, uh, you mentioned that there is bad fire and brimstone teaching what would be an example of that? But perhaps that would, that's a partial answer to it, the Gnostic. Yeah, well, wasn't it, um, wasn't the title of Jonathan Edwards or Mike conflating that with somebody else, wasn't the title uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? I mean, already that's just kind of like, I don't know about that. So even just something like the title, um, I think I think bad fire and brimstone would be embodied in uh, you know if you've gone to um, gosh I've seen these people everywhere if you go to a convention up at the Anaheim Convention Center or if you go to a football game maybe at UCLA or USC uh, I don't know who knows maybe they're outside of the pro venues too but you see the the people with the big signs that say turn or burn and God, God hates, you know, fill in the blank, or you're all going to hell, or they've got a list of kind of selective sins that they've chosen, and these are damnable sins. And their whole message, ostensibly, is you're all going to hell unless you become part of our cult. I would lump that pretty safely within bad fire and brimstone. Yeah, the Westboro Baptist would be a great example of all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, again... We, what we recognize in the scriptures, and this, comes, this language comes right out of the scriptures, is that the work of condemnation is the um, alienum operum, the alien work of God. God, does, God um, desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why does he proclaim condemnation of sins so that sinners would turn and be saved? So his, you know, what does God actually want? He wants the world to be the way he created it, where he's simply a loving father who does not show wrath to his children. Why would he? I mean, it's the same thing in your own house as a father or a mother. 
Who wakes up and says, I hope I'm going to get really upset with my kids? Nobody. Okay? Who's, who wakes up and says, well, I can't wait to get upset today. That's an essential part of my personality. Nobody. Okay? You, you wake up and you go, gosh, I hope I'm going to have a good day. I hope my kids are going to behave themselves. I hope everything's going to go right. Inevitably, when they don't, okay, then you have, to one degree or another, this experience of wrath. This experience of, I need to... Why? Because you suddenly hate your kids and you want them to abide in your wrath forever? No. Precisely because you want them to repent and be other than they are. Okay? But, that, but you see how you begin in graciousness. Okay? Their actions cause wrath, but that wrath is directed toward their destruction or their well-being. Their well-being, so that you can so even your wrath functions in that respect as a way of increasing their well-being. This is what's I mean. This is the essential logic behind God disciplining those whom He loves, and that no son escapes the discipline of the heavenly Father. So God, and all of that to say, that same principle extends even to unbelievers that the proclamation of condemnation is precisely to warn them off from it, to scare the hell out of them, (laughs) or to scare them out of hell, so that they'll listen to what he says when he says, look, this is going to be the fruit of your labors on the end of your course unless you turn to me and receive the forgiveness of your sins that I've provided in Christ Jesus. In him alone is life. In him alone is the antidote to all these things that are ailing you. So that's the, the way in which the wrath of God is always secondary. So a key and, and always in service of his ultimate purpose of saving. Now, true enough, it just it manifests in justice where his mercy is rejected and just that's the way it is. But I would say then any time where the, the wrath of God, the fire and brimstone message becomes disconnected from the salvific message and becomes not an alien work of God, but the chief work and end of God, it's going to miss. As soon as you define it like that, then you can see that it broadens out and calls other teachings of other denominations into question as well. I mean, not least of which, the idea that God, from the foundations of the earth, damns some people to hell and there's nothing they can do about it. I mean, obviously that is a bad fire and brimstone teaching and a bad fire and brimstone preaching, that of the the Calvinists. Okay, so there's some examples. Great questions. Anything else on this? All right, off we go. Third, a minister of the word ought not only teach things true and in harmony with the divine word, but he ought also render his faithfulness to God and the church entrusted to him in this, that he at the same time rightly feed the sheep and, so notice these two things, hold off the wolf from the sheepfolds. Or as Luther says, he should do both nourish and defend. Okay, this is a big problem because what's actually crept into our language is when a pastor is being, uh, is feeding the sheep, is comforting the sheep, is being tender to the sheep, is being merciful or is doing the gospel or any other things like this, he is being pastoral. Oh, pastor so-and-so is such a pastoral man. But what we mean by that is that he's feeding the sheep, he's comforting the sheep. Okay, is that precisely what it means to be pastoral? No, that's precisely one half of what it means to be pastoral. The other aspect of being pastoral is as David took his sling against the lions and tigers and bears, oh my, so also the good shepherd defends from the wolf even unto the laying down of his own life. Uh, The pastor is called not only to be Mr. Nice Guy to the sheep, but to be Mr. Bad Guy to the wolf. And those two aspects are both essential. So let me tell you know, and and again, you can see how this is, how, how our language has gotten warped on this point. Jesus is being every bit as pastoral 
when he says, come unto me, weary, and I will give you rest, as he is, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed sepulchers. Those, uh, woe to you. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you. Okay, both of those are equally pastoral. You see, so we've mistaken pastoral for nice. We say a man is pastoral if he's nice or nice. We call him pastoral. But again, I think that this uh, part of Chemnitz, this reflection, really shows us the truth that a pastor has to have this twofold nature. Which, by the way, is one of the essential reasons why a pastor has to be a man and cannot be a woman. Because men of their essence are called to these tasks vocationally and women aren't. Men are called to feed the sheep and defend the sheep from the wolf. That is to say, provide and protect. It's the essential role of a man in the house as the head of the household to make sure that everybody within your household has what they need, not always what they want, that's not required, but what they need. And when danger comes, you don't say, hey, honey, I think feminism's right, it's your turn. Uh, hey, what was that bump in the night? I don't know, but since, we're, since both genders are equal and our roles are interchangeable, why don't you go get the shotgun and see? Uh, so men are called essentially to um, provide and protect, and then you can see that that is why then pastors are simply called to do this for a larger flock than one's own family, but for the people of God in a given place. Okay, and that's, by the way, that's not the only proof. That's not even the central proof, but that's one irrefutable proof of why men only can be in the office. Okay, um, let's go just a little further, and then I'll get your thoughts. Very bottom of 46, Chemnitz continues. He ought, therefore, neither defend nor cover up or paper over false doctrine but oppose it openly and plainly and warn his flock to beware of it. All right, so yeah, I've been told in no uncertain terms that the pulpit is not the place to condemn false doctrine. Well, where pray tell is. And what do you make, Sir Uber Lutheran, of Luther doing the same thing? I mean, almost every other line, Luther's calling out the papacy, or the radical reformers and fanatics. And you can hardly get through a Luther sermon without a dozen times in which he's calling out false doctrine. It's an essential part of being pastoral. It's an essential part of preaching. And again, where that's unpopular in our day and age is because we think that doctrine is the thing that's closed up in the dusty textbooks. Whereas false doctrine is constantly morphing and manifesting itself and changing so that it's not even recognized as false doctrine. So where, that, where that's at right now is many of our social and political issues that we've just put over there as social and political and atheological are in fact the manifest false doctrines that are destroying people. And we just don't have them written in the textbooks yet so that they're recognized as doctrinal issues. But they are, in fact, doctrinal issues. Because what does doctrine mean? Teaching. We're talking about the difference between truth and lies. And we don't get to say, well, truth and lies really matter if it has to do with the Trinity, or if it has to do with Christ, or if it has to do with the free will, or if it has to do with the sacraments, or if it has to do with election. Then, then it, truth and false really matters. But anything outside of that, it doesn't matter. No, we can't say that. Truth and lies cut through every aspect of life, and the truth is true teaching and doctrine, and the lie is false teaching, false doctrine. Okay. So then we're constantly on the offensive in terms of recognizing false doctrine and, uh, again, as Luther says, not defending it, not covering it up, not papering it over, but rather opposing it openly and plainly. It's my job to warn the flock to beware of it. And you can think how so many pastors for so long have been muzzled. You can't say anything political 
which is interesting because that's a what? Doctrine. (laughs) And is it a true doctrine or a false doctrine? False, absolutely. So already a false doctrine is leading us into the false doctrine, the false teaching of not being able to speak against a certain set of false teachings. So, again, all of this has to do, I think, at root with our mistakenness that God is nice, Jesus is nice, the pastor is supposed to be nice. That's all they are supposed to do. And anything that's not nice is not my pastor, not my Jesus, not my God. Okay, so a little further then, um, and of course we've got biblical references to all of this, this warning about false doctrine. Chemnitz continues, but he is not to stir up all kinds of unnecessary disputes, and strifes about words, this logomachy. So, um, again, like, okay, what would be a very classic example of a, of a war over words? How many sacraments are there? That is an example of a war over words. If you dig your foot in, you say, there are two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And somebody else says, no, there's seven. Baptism in the Lord's Supper and five others. Somebody else says, sacraments, there's as many sacraments as there are articles of the faith. Okay. What's really going on there is a difference over the definition of the word sacrament. That's what's going on. So you're just saying, my definition is right. No, my definition is right. That's a logomachy. That's a war over words. You say, well, if you define it that way, I agree. If I define it this way, would you agree? Yeah, you'd agree. Then there's no actual disagreement, you see. So that's the kind of unnecessary dispute, unnecessary uh, strife about words um, that pastors are explicitly not to stir up, and they err in their office just as grievously as if they were to let false doctrine run free if they create unnecessary disputes and strifes. Um, They're equally as guilty, dereliction of their office. Okay, so just once more to get Chemnitz's own sense. But he is not to stir up all kinds of unnecessary disputes and strifes about words instead of a discourse and arouse his hearers with untimely clamoring, but only fight against adversaries in necessary conflicts, without which purity of doctrine cannot be retained. And in these very things, Let him always have regard to his hearers as to what is useful and necessary for their edification so that they might continue in sound doctrine and be able to protect themselves against the ferment of false doctrine. All right. So should I be preaching from the pulpit as if it were doctrine the size of the green waste container that the city should elect to give to its citizens? No. What about, should I, should I, from the pulpit, be making broad decrees about whether the speed limit should be 65 or 75? I mean, obviously 75, but... That <laughs> All right, these are, these are kinds of silly examples, um, but there are more serious examples and more serious errors that a pastor could fall into, where he's uh, making a stand where the Word of God itself doesn't make a stand. Um, and there are many things, of course, I mean, be, like as in all vocations, it's art and not science. There are times and places where a pastor may choose to be confrontational about something or to let something slide, if, even if only temporarily. And all of that has to do with the art and role of his office. But at the end of the day, of course, you know, it's like a pastor can't use that as an excuse either. Well, I've got divorced people in my congregation, so I can never speak about divorce. Or, you know, I'm guilty of, of having a short temper, so I can never speak about the sin of having a short temper because I'd look like a hypocrite. You're not allowed to do that. In the office, you have to call out all sins, including those that everybody knows you have. <laughs> okay? And um, even those that may be hurtful to people in your congregation or audience. Again, they're going to understand by the way in which you do it that the end goal is not to hurt them or to condemn them. The end goal is to drive to repentance and to Christ. And that's the same with all sins, from the greatest to the least.
Okay, any thoughts there? Yeah, there's a hand. I have a quick question. I grew up in a steel mill town outside of Pittsburgh, and uh, when I left the town, uh, a new pastor came into our church, and the steel mills were being shut down, and the you know the parishioners were being laid off, and this pastor became an activist, and he went on the picket lines representing and with the steel mill workers that the corporation U.S. Steel should not be shutting them down and denying them work, et cetera. I'm just wondering, you think, is that going too far in, in identifying with the uh, sheep? Generally speaking, yes. I don't, I don't want to make a judgment on another servant, so the particular circumstances aren't known to me well enough anyway, but in a, as a general rule, a pastor as such needs to remain within his office. Now, where it, where it gets gray, okay, would it be inappropriate for a pastor to join a protest, uh, let's say, or a pro-life rally, a protest against abortion rights or something? Probably most Christians, most pastors would say that's appropriate. But what about where some other social injustice is occurring? And that's where it starts to get gray. And I think some of this could be avoided if the pastor just said, well, I'm going to go and support this because I believe in this personally, but I'm going to do so without wearing my clerical garb and without addressing it. This is a personal concern of mine, so I'm going to go there unofficially. But even then, a pastor needs to be very wise because sometimes he can't be extricated from his office and people are going to recognize him as such. And um, the general principle is you don't want to engage in anything that undercuts your ability to do your office, the office that Christ has given you to do. That's the general principle, and obviously that's art and not science. There's going to be people that disagree on particulars. Um, but a safe rule of thumb is, if you don't see Jesus or the apostles doing that kind of thing, probably you shouldn't either. So I don't know how many political causes you saw Jesus join in in the Gospels. I don't think too many, if any. Likewise, the apostles. We have a different agenda. We have a different agenda. Um, we may, to our flocks, make a definitive moral statement that has application to a social policy, but to actually then go out and be activistic about it is probably not always wise and maybe only under some limited circumstances wise. Great question. Um, you, you talked a little bit about Calvinism. Where, where did he get his ideas and what was leading up to that thing of you know some are saved, some are condemned and all that. Yeah, well whereas um, there is a distinction being noted between Calvin who seems somewhat softer on these issues versus Calvinism which is like a doubling down and maybe amplification of some of what he was saying uh, this double predestination um, really comes out of a, ra a rationalistic answer to the question uh, cure alii, non alii, which is why some and not others. Okay? And that's um, why are some saved and not others. Also known as the crux theologorum, the cross of the theologians. Um, I don't think it's called the cross of the theologians for this reason, but it's always a helpful mnemonic for me, and that's if you try to answer it, you're crucifying yourself because you're going to fall afoul of God's word. Why some and not others is not ultimately given for us to know. But Calvinism is a rationalistic answer to that. And it simply says, if salvation is by God alone, then of logical necessity, damnation is of God alone. Okay? So they try to solve the crooks, the allegorum, why some not others, by saying it's all on God. The alternative to that is decision theology, and that's what we're much more familiar with. And it just answers the question, but it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with God. God's completely fair and just and exonerated. It has everything to do with man. Man either chooses to believe or doesn't choose to believe. But what's, what's the problem with that? I mean, in the first place, then, salvation is based on your decision. But in the second place, you have just so many scriptures that you did not choose me, I chose you. <laughs> Um, you've been justified by grace through faith apart from works and this not your own doing. So the faith itself, not your own doing. Yeah, etc. So both uh, Calvin and Arminius give logical answers to that question, but ultimately not scriptural answers to that question. 
And both of them are, end up being a, a wrong, being a twisting of doctrine such that law and gospel also kind of uh, are twisted and warped with them. I mean, the gospel in Calvinism, strictly speaking, is uh, hopefully you're elect because then Jesus died for you. If you're not elect, Jesus didn't die for you. He only died for the elect. Well, how do I know that I'm elect? Do I look to my baptism? Oh, heavens, no. Do I look to the Lord's Supper? No, 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 not that either. You look to your own good works. Because only if you see good works can you be guaranteed that you have the Spirit, can you be guaranteed that you're elect from the foundation of the world. Ah, so my faith that I'm elect is in my works. My faith that I'm saved is in my works. Oh boy, what does that sound like? Sounds like we went full circle all the way back to Rome. And that is indeed what we've done. It just looks very different. So it's a reliance on works in that system. Um, If you ever talk to a Calvinist who really, really believed Calvinism, it's absolutely torturous because you can never be certain that Christ died for you because he didn't die for all. You can never, ever be certain whether or not you're elect because election is hidden with God in heaven. So you can never have any certainty if you're honest about it. Um, And that's that's a bad way to live. So that's how it gets wrecked in Calvinism. Okay, any other thoughts? Yep. You know, in Arminianism and decision theology, it gets wrecked kind of on the other side of the coin. Like, God God has done everything for you except this one thing that you have to do. God's written you a check for... A million dollars, but you have to sign your name on it, you know. Um, you always have to do something. And, and ultimately, materially, like, why am I in heaven, but this other guy, Smith, is in hell? Well, because I made a decision for Jesus, and Smith rejected Jesus. So the entire cause of salvation lands on the human being. Yeah, please. Okay, I have a question, and then I want to make comment mm-hmm. before you respond. Um, I remember years ago asking a pastor about Deborah, who was a prophet. Mm-hmm. How is that justified? And his response was, it was because of the weakness of the men in the, in the um, Israel who would not stand up. Yeah. Um, but, a, and, but a prophet would be very different than a pastor in terms of their offices okay. and in terms of their roles and the definition of those offices. Okay, so so you gotta, yeah, you gotta be, you got to be wary of that conflation of, oh, well, there was a female prophetess that once existed, okay. ergo female pastors. I mean, that requires many <laughs> logical leaps to get to that point. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to make the comment that I sympathize with men today, with our culture. Maybe it's being ironed out, but... In observing the State of the Union message with mm, yeah. uh, female processing with, um, what's her name, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and then the response given by Sarah Sanders, that it's like the achievement of, of the political, cultural world for women to be leading. And, mm-hmm. and I feel the... Condri- uh, the, the um, Quandary men face is, I don't know if it still exists today, but do you open a door for a woman or will she be insulted and all that? And I just, I feel sorry for for men. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In our class system or caste system, the the young men in their, um, maybe maybe some in their 30s to be sure, uh, but certainly the 20s and the late teens, you know, when they're coming into their uh, young adulthood, um, the males are the lowest class and have everything stacked against them in a way that previous generations uh, have no clue, including my own generation. I mean, I, I have to learn by listening to these guys because opportunities even that I had, they no longer have. And uh, opportunities that I have were already slipping away in the sense that, I mean, just, just consider, just consider um, uh, well, I don't know, depending on your age, your grandparents or your parents, many of them were able to work where dad uh, dropped out of high school or maybe got his high school degree and nothing further. He went and worked at the mill or he went and um, had a grocery store or he went and worked as a mechanic. And by his 40 hours a week, the whole family could live. You could own a house with a yard, 40 hours a week, vacations, right? 
wife at home, nothing to do but run the entire home, which is overwhelming. Okay? But that was family life. That doesn't even exist at all. At all. I, I'm in my 40s, and um, my, let's just say people in their 40s, like already that's starting to get more and more rare. I mean, maybe even the, the minority of us were kind of like able to sort of like start to do that kind of thing, but kind of pretty much still gone. Already you, you've got to have a college degree. You've got to, the college degree has to be pertinent to a field. You have to get it within that field and be consistent within that field. And of course, the nature of it all has changed too. I mean, whereas it used to be loyalty was rewarded, you just stick with one company and work your way up the ranks. I mean, that's gone. No, if you stick with one company, they'll never pay you a dime more, and then they'll fire you for your years of service. Uh, you almost have to now bounce from company to company in order to try to elevate your pay, which creates a great deal of instability. So I, I'm, a, I'm a little off on the weeds here, but the point is, um, if you actually objectively look at what young men face today, uh, it's, it's unconscionable. It's a disaster. It's a civic and uh, psychological and spiritual disaster. And anything we can do to lift up those young men, help those young men, encourage those young men, um, not platitudeize those young men. Um, that's what we need to do. Because that's where, that's where all the chickens of all our social stuff for the last 70 years are coming home to roost. Right on their shoulders. Okay, well, enough on that. I just have to add masculinity. Yeah, please. Masculinity is toxic, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all that's, all that's a disaster, too, because men don't know, how to, don't know how to work in a thoroughly feminized society. They don't know how to be men. And everything in society is telling them to be the opposite of what they are. And then the sad, I mean, the, so you have, like, counter-movements, like the manosphere and uh, MGTOW, which is men going their own way. So the social world is so stacked against them, and uh, the idea of marriage and um, how that works is so stacked against them that they're just like opting out. But the problem is that that too leads to its own toxicity and dysfunction and sort of buries in its own way um, what God would have the male to do. So, again, if you just sort of try to objectively look at, like, what your average American male faces, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And the only, quote-unquote, help that's sort of, like, readily available will lead you in a way that is certainly more true, but probably in the end, every bit is toxic. So that's, yeah, that's a big problem. It's a big problem. And we could spend a lot of time un- unraveling this, but it's like, why do men not want to be married right now? Because women initiate the vast majority of divorces. Why do women initiate the vast majority of divorces? Because our laws haven't caught up with the social changes. Once upon a time in that magical world that I described that our parents and or grandparents, depending on our age, knew where there was one person who could work, the man, Okay, there's this sense that the man, is this of interest or I know we're off on a tangent? Okay, the man, the man has given himself to a career and vocation, all right? And the social contract of marriage is that the woman is giving up her life in order to serve him and the family, and he's giving up his life, okay, in order to serve her and the family. All right, enter no fault, fault divorce, now, in that structure, who has the power? The man. So he can leave any time he wants because he's the breadwinner. What's he going to do? What's the woman going to do with no career and a bunch of kids? She's the vulnerable one. So laws were created that if a man does that, he owes half his paycheck to her to support her because they engaged in this social contract and he can't. So the courts award this to her now. Make sense under that? I think so. I think so. And it's why like a prenump in those generations to get a prenuptial, like if, a, if you came to a pastor and said, oh, we want, we want to be married, but we want a prenuptial, the pastor would be like, uh, you're not ready for marriage, friend. Okay. Now, what has happened is those, those laws that were written for that structure have not changed while the structure has changed. 
Now, almost always, both are working outside of the home. And with no-fault divorce and the structure still being tipped in the favor of women, very frequently what you see today, the vast majority of women are initiating divorces. Why? Because they can just jump to another man. They can find a man who provides, but now they still get half of what their husband was making. And so now they jump to the provision of another man. They get that in full. And they get half of what their husband... So now their husband is forced to continue to fund their new marriage and, uh, and kids. And the woman probably is working on her own also. So she is completely incentivized. There is no... Uh, again, she has the whole power in this structure. But the laws have not adjusted to recognize that. Okay. So men are going in, so young men are saying, why should I enter into this contract where I'm going to put everything I own on the table and anytime she wants, for whatever reason, I burn the toast. I don't put my laundry in the hamper every night. Uh, she can simply take half of everything I own and take it. What do I get out of it? Nothing. So this is the, the recognizing that the system is antiquated and is now stacked against males is why you have this whole movement of, men, of young men not even wanting to get married. And this, by the way, is also what's going on with those statistics where, so again, this is all just paganism, but it used to be, remember we'd all used to wring our hands about how much extramarital sex was going on? That was like the 80s and the 90s. And now we're all wringing our hands that there's no extramarital sex going on or not as much as there used to be. Why? Because men don't want anything to do with it. And there's other contributing factors as well, including the sex in the city phenomenon, where women are just encouraged to live you know, scandalous lifestyles, and that's their right. And lo and behold, that's unattractive to men. And so men don't want anything to do with that either. And double standard or not, that's, that's irrelevant at this point. Men are looking at the equation and going, okay, so the whole system's set up that the women are supposed to go out, sleep with whoever they want, have uh, dozens of partners, um, enter into a marital contract where they've already been pre-programmed for infidelity, enter into a marital pro- where they're pre-programmed for infidelity, and they're going to take half of what I want, and there's no recourse whatsoever. She just decides, that's it, I burnt the toast, I want this other guy, um, I just want your money and to be free from you, she can do it. Tell me why I would enter into that contract. Now, from a pastoral standpoint, it's almost flipped on its head to where I want to look at young men and say, I won't marry you without a prenup. Because only then do we start to actually mitigate and balance the power structure at play so that maybe, hopefully, your wife won't just leave and take whatever you want on a whim. Because that's actually where we are and actually what's happening. So things are completely upside down and completely moving fast. And you think of how, how dangerous this all is. Uh, it's not only dangerous spiritually or individually. I mean, obviously, that's where we feel the hurt. But civically and in terms of the strength of a nation, it's all being disintegrated at that point. Birth rates plummeting. And a mishmash, uh, you know, again, uh, you can see how abortion functions in this regard as a way of minimizing children, minimizing obligation. Um, And so all of it just becomes a mishmash um, with the government as the head. And that's where everything is going. So, um, again, I just, I bring these things up. I know we're way off on a tangent. Now we're two minutes over, but... Um, in terms of like ministering to, let me, let me retie it in this way, ministering to false doctrine. Well, make sure you get your Christology right. Well, make sure you know that it's one God and three persons. Make sure you un- don't, cross your, don't cross the lines of the hypostatic union. Okay? Don't, don't mess up the power and operation of the Holy Spirit. All of these things are important, and they always are important. But they're not what's killing spiritually murdering our young people. What is are things we don't even recognize yet formally as false doctrines. They're the very things I've been articulating, and they are false doctrines, false teachings, lies and injustices that are murderous to people at every level.
Does that make sense? Okay, so that's the kind of thing as a pastor, and this is the kind of thing that, by the way, people should be encouraging pastors to speak out against, because this is where the rubber hits the road. What the devil wants to do is convince us, no, 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 pastor, your job is to tell us what the third commandment meant in the first century and leave it at that. That's doctrine. Don't you dare step out of your office and speak to these things that are actually false doctrines, actually murdering people and destroying the world. So this is then our call as pastors, as church, is to identify the real false doctrines that are really doing harm and call them out and combat them in whatever ways we can. All right, no doubt you'll have lots of questions and maybe some pushback, and that's great. But I've already held you over, and I know you're being polite, so thank you for that. We'll simply pick back up with uh, the fourth Lochi here on page 47 next week. The Lord be with you.